0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help... More women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, and our podcast is there for you 24 7. Wherever you get yours, just look for Women at Work and Laura Zarrow, and you'll find us. And be sure to follow us on and the show on the channel's Twitter handle at SXM Business, as well as mine at Laura Zarrow. As many of you have heard me say, you can't manage what you don't measure. So if we really want to understand the state of women in the workforce, good data, well collected, analyzed, and reported is essential. And no one does this more effectively than the annual Women in the Workplace report from McKinsey and LeanIn.org. Now in its seventh year, it's the largest annual benchmark on women's progress in corporate America. And it has some really important stories to tell which is why today's show is all about it. We're going to talk about the findings and what we can do as individuals and organizations to put them to good use. Key to that, though, are today's two amazing guests, Rachel Thomas and Jess Huang, two of the authors of the report. Rachel is the co-founder and CEO of LeanIn.org, and Jess is a partner at McKinsey & Company. Ladies, thank you so much for joining us on Women at Work today. Thank you for having us. Hello. It's great to be here. So, Rachel, I want to start with you. Before we even talk about the findings, help us understand a little bit about the report itself and how McKinsey and LeanIn.org partner to produce this each year. This is a big undertaking.
2: So as you said, seven years ago, I remember vividly sitting in a conference room talking about this report and bringing it to the world. And the vision was exactly what you said. Uh, both Lean In and McKinsey, we felt so strongly that we needed to get the definitive source on what was happening to women or you know, um, in corporate America out into the world. Because if you don't measure it, you can't change it. If you don't know you have a problem, you can't fix it. And what's so interesting though, Laura, over the years is, we originally envisioned it mostly as a report for companies and business leaders, and you see HROs to drive the right change in their organizations. But over the years, it's also really become a powerful tool for women themselves. Mm-hmm. because we hear over and over again they feel validated by the data particularly big data right when it's your personal experience and you think it's just you and all of a sudden the definitive report comes out on the experiences of women and you see yourself in the pages that's really powerful and then the other thing is now they are sending it um kind of virtually underlined it's they are sending it to their managers um and using it as a way to signal what they think needs to be changed on their team without having to walk into the office and do it themselves.
1: Yeah. So that's amazing. So we get to see ourselves in it. It affirms our own experience. And then it gives each of us a tool to help other people understand these issues. Right. And
2: just one thing, oh, sorry, just to give you a sense of the scale this year, Jess will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think over the seven years, Over 600 companies have participated, employing more than 12 million people. This year, 423 companies employing 12 million people participated, and we surveyed 65,000, over 65,000
1: individual employees. That's That's enormous. And and that reinforces that this isn't just some data. This is a lot of data, really well collected, um, which means we can trust these insights. It's enormous. So, Jess... One of my questions is when these we take these in as part of the public um, as kind of aggregated data, big picture, do the organizations also receive it that way or do they get their own reports? So both
0: they take this as a state of the state, what they should be tracking across time and participating companies also get an individual company report where they see their own numbers and it's stacked up against the rest of their peers and industry that participated, as well as the rest of corporate America. So for companies that participate and have participated year over year, they now tell us that this is something they look forward to every single year and they use it internally to hold themselves accountable. Um, And it's sort of, you know, really great opportunity for them to see how they stack up against others both you know, in representation across the pipeline, as well as what programs and policies they have in place versus others in their industry. And they really use it to inform their decisions for the next year.
1: It's so exciting to hear because when I think about, when I actually first grasped this concept that you can't manage what you don't measure, um, it was actually when I went to Weight Watchers and I got on a scale and there were other people looking at that scale and it can be really frightening. You have to have a lot of courage, especially as an organization, to step up and say, we're going to look at this. Um, And I'm so glad to hear that that framing of these organizations look forward to getting it. How do you help the new organizations that come on each year get ready for this?
0: Well, so for companies that want to participate, they can sign, uh, sign up during sort of like the January, February timeframe, actually, quick plug, if you're interested in participating (laughs) next year, you could go to our website at womanintheworkplace.com and indicate that you want to participate now. Um, And we sort of give them a briefing. We talk to them about why this report is valuable, why it matters. And it's actually um, a pretty easy process in terms of very clear directions and we sort of preview here are the kind of results that you'll get back. And these are the conversations we'll have coming out of the report. Um, so you can use it in terms of your own tracking internally, in terms of where you decide to implement new programs and policies.
1: As a uh, clearly obviously a big fan of the report, and I look forward to it every year. The way that it's presented, um, it's both sophisticated and really accessible, and it breaks all these complex ideas down to help us understand them, um, population by population, and also with um, important guidelines about what we can do going forward. But yet- Every So that's something that's consistent year to year, but it also seems like the report changes year to year. So Rachel, talk to me a little bit about the way that the reports evolved and in particularly this year's focus on intersectionality and burnout.
2: So Laura, first of all, that was music to our ears because um, I joke the cost per word on that report is quite high. Um, because in order to really distill it down so you can pick it up and read it and hopefully it's easy for you to get through. Um, we work darn hard at that. So thank you. Um, thank you for recognizing that in terms of you know, how the report works. One thing I think is helpful for people to know is, you know, every year there's longitudinal questions. So the questions we ask companies every year and ask employees every year so we can really use those to kind of measure trends over time. But then every year we develop about 30 percent of the questions are new and they're based on what's going on in the world. Um, so obviously over the last two uh, years of the study, we've been very focused on the impact of the pandemic on employees' lives. Obviously, there's been a racial reckoning in this country. We've been really focused on how that racial rush- reckoning is impacting companies and their decision making. And so every year, you know about a third of the report is looking for new insights. So I always say we follow the data. The data tell the story. So we do have some hypotheses going in based on what's going on in the world, but we follow the data. And so the story looks different every year because the data looks different. So that's the first thing. The second thing is in terms of the intersectionality of the report, um, we have tried every year. I feel like it's an onion. And every year we try to peel a layer of the onion and get deeper into the experiences of women. So the intersectionality started uh, year two. We went to companies and said, we'd like to get your pipeline data, so where people are represented at every level in your organization. We'd like to not just get that by gender. We'd like to get it by race and ethnicity. And we'd like to get it at the intersection of gender and race and ethnicity, which means we're specifically looking at women of color. And most organizations didn't have it back then, truth be told. And so we made it optional. Um, but those that did started to deliver that data. So that was the beginning of our journey of trying to kind of more deeply understand the experiences of women. Because the data set is as big as it is, um, we ask a lot of demographic questions and because it's as big as it is, we are now able to cut the data in all kinds of interesting and quite candidly often really disheartening ways because Mm -hmm. the data itself just tells such a powerful story. So this year we took a really deep look at the experiences of Asian women, Latinas, black women, women with disabilities, and gay and lesbian women. We even, because the data set is so big this year, we able to look at the experiences of what we're calling double onlys. So the, those are women in on teams or in groups where they're the only woman and the only person of color. Um, and sadly, but not surprisingly, double only. so those women who really are you know underrepresented, they are having a much worse experience than women overall. They're three times more likely to hear, And um, hear comments questioning their abilities or their language skills. They're three times more likely to hear something insulting about people like them. And so, but that's the type of insights we're able to get as we kind of peel that onion. Not only are we looking at the experiences of women, not only the experiences of women of color, but what happens when you're um, a double only on a team.
1: Yeah, I've watched this unfold in the reports over the years. And I also feel like there's this Um, way that you're educating through the report so many of us, which help us be ready to receive the insights in the following year. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM, Channel 132. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. Today I'm talking with Rachel Thomas and the CEO of who who is the co founder and CEO of Leanin.org, and Jess Wang, who's the a partner at McKinsey and Company. And we're talking about the annual Women in the Workplace report. So, one of the things you mentioned before, which we talk about all the time is the pipeline. Jess, I want to, if you could, help us um, understand this a little more deeply, especially for people who are new in thinking about these questions and also who don't see the report. Because one of the things you've done so brilliantly in it is made visual the concept of the pipeline, and quite importantly, the leaky pipeline, that path and where people are falling out. So talk to me more, Jess, about how this relates to succession in corporate America.
0: Yeah, it's a great point, Laura. We look at the pipeline because we don't just care about women's representation overall, but we know that in order to ensure that women are making it all the way to the top, you have to track that representation at every step of the way and see where you are gaining or losing ground. Unfortunately for women, and especially women of color, the story across the pipeline from entry level all the way to the top is mostly one of losing ground. That said, this is something like Rachel mentioned, we're so excited that we get to track year over year so we can see where corporate America is or is not making progress. So we've actually seen that, you know, over the last seven years, with a lot of attention being made to the glass ceiling, there's been progress, especially at the top. So representation of women at the C-suite has actually seen a 27 percent increase from 2016 to 2021.
1: Okay, so that's worthy of celebration. That's progress.
0: A little bit. (laughs) Yeah, it is progress. Not enough, Not it's enough. progress. Not enough, and what I think Rachel and I would say is definitely not sustainable given the warning signs we're seeing in earlier stages of the pipeline. The biggest warning sign that we've consistently seen in our data is something we call the broken rung. And the broken rung is that first promotion from entry level to manager, And we've consistently tracked this, and we haven't seen a ton of improvement. So for every 100 men that are promoted at this stage, only 89 white women are promoted and 86 black women are promoted. And so it's 86 women overall for every 100 men from entry level to first up to manager. And if we think about what you were saying, Laura, in terms of like the leaky pipeline, this is a huge leak. If right. you don't progress women to the you know middle stages of the pipeline, you're never going to progress them to the top, no matter how much you double down on the so-called glass ceiling.
1: So Rachel, why is it that this This first rung and to, you know, just beat the metaphor to death or rather to explain it is that it's like it's climbing the ladder of success and you can't do it if you're not promoted to manager. Why is that happening? What are the things that are preventing women from getting that first promotion?
2: Yeah. So a couple of things for, first of all, for people who are new to the concept, I just want to kind of pause on it for one minute. So if you imagine at that first step up to manager, and these are rough numbers, what happens because of that broken rung is roughly two thirds of managers end up being men. One third of managers end up being women. And those are rough numbers. Jess is probably like, Rachel, that's not great math, but those are rough numbers. To and is control-
1: that, and, and I want to unpack this a little bit. Is that because from the Is it that at the very beginning, the first hire, say, after college or business school, are more men than women getting hired to begin with? So what
2: happens is men are slightly, we see year over year, slightly more likely to get roles at the entry level, but it's almost 50-50, Laura. And that's why this broken rung matters so much. If you come in and you're almost 50-50, equally represented, and then something happens at that step up to manager. And it's mostly in promotion rates. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you end up, as I said, with most, of, you know, the majority of managers being men, um, women, much less represented. And then when you go to hire for director, you have fewer women to hire your, your and so on and is so smaller, on and so on. Exactly. So why the question then becomes why? So um we so I'll, I'll use the lean in POV because um, uh, I don't want to pull McKinsey entirely into our <laughs> point of view, I th- although I think we have yeah, mostly a shared vision. but we believe that there's a lot of bias in hiring and promotions, you know mm-hmm. hard stop at every level of the pipeline. Um, in fact, if you think about it, the fact that there's a broken rung is one of the most, like, I think strongest Um, arguments that there actually is a lot of bias in the system. Because to your point, Laura, these are companies that just hired these brand new, usually recent grads into their organization and effectively said, you all belong here. We think you're pretty equally qualified. Welcome. And then something happens at that first step up to manager where men are much more likely to be promoted. So, you know, I look at all the research, you have 30 30 years of social science research, and we know that we tend to more naturally associate men with leadership than we do women. We tend to give men kind of more credit for their potential, what we think they might do than we do for women because of that kind of deep-seated stereotype that men are better leaders. So I think that is some of it. It's so pervasive. um, And we all of all genders kind of fall into that bias trap. So I think that's one thing that there is just bias in the system and that organizations need to continue to push to make both hiring and and promotion more equitable.
1: And that bias in the system, to be honest, because it's important to recognize it, is a kind of unconscious bias that's in all of us, men and women alike. And that's why I say all genders...
2: You know, even the most well-intentioned people, we have just grown up in a culture that signals to us, men are better leaders. And so we kind of go into the workplace with this deep-seated belief. Um, So, you know, organizations are doing a lot to try to make hiring and promotions more equitable, not just from a gender lens, you know, all all different lenses. Um, And what we think is happening is you're getting better outcomes at the top. Because companies are focusing more energy at the top. They have mm-hmm. more practices in place to make their hiring and promotions equitable and fair. They've doubled down, as Jess said earlier, on hiring hiring and promotions up at the you know, VP, SVPC level because they want to change their numbers. So it signals great intent.
1: It, so is that, I, I want to just probe this for a second. Is that because um, at that point, the pipeline has lost so many people that they have to double down in order to get diversity at those ranks? Or, and, is it that um, there's a recognition that culture is set from the top? So I think it's
2: a a three-way and, right? So I think the first is they don't have the numbers they need anymore, right? So they need to kind of work hard to get more women into those senior, senior leadership positions. Two, we know that even... A couple, the addition of a couple key woman leaders in senior leadership can make a huge difference in an, difference in an mm-hmm. organization, which is why we don't take those gains, that progress, lightly. Um, and then third, I think it's little. It, it, that's where most organizations the scrutiny is: who's in your C suite, who's at your SVP level. So I think that there's a, a brighter light on the top of your pipeline, and that's why organizations often focus energy there. But the good news is where companies are focusing their energy up at those senior levels, they are getting better results because they have more practices in place to make those
1: processes equitable. So Jess, this sounds like some of this is optics, but some of this has also got to be that these women in these leadership roles are leading differently. Does the data show any of that? It
0: does. And I think Rachel hinted at this when she said, We know that there is a big difference if you can get a woman senior leader into your organization. And we've seen like hints of this in our data every single year. This year, this really jumped out at us, the outsized impact that senior leader women are having on their organizations. And in particular, we saw it in two main areas. The first is the way senior women leaders are setting the standard for people leadership. So interestingly, we asked both leaders, as well as all employees, um, what managers at their company and leaders at their company were doing. And when you talk to employees or when you survey employees with women managers versus surveying employees with men managers, Employees with women managers tell us that women senior leaders are doing more to help them do things like navigate their work-life balance, manage workloads and priorities, provide emotional support. So we're hearing that women senior leaders are just doing more in terms of people leadership and helping manage employee well-being. The other thing we're actually seeing is that Women senior leaders are doing a lot more in terms of informal diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And so even when it is not central to their job, women senior leaders are doing two times as much as their male peers. So we know there are fewer of them than their male peers, and they're doing so much more. And so that shows up in the way they are allies to women of color that shows up in the way that they sponsor other women and women of color. And so if you look at the impact that these women senior leaders are having on employee well-being, on D&I for an organization more broadly, it's definitely outside compared to their
1: male peers. Without a doubt. By the way, for those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Rachel Thomas, co-founder and CEO of leanin.org, and Jess Wang, partner at McKinsey & Company. And we're talking about the Women in the Workplace report, my annual treat. Um, So one of the things that this is saying to me is aside, like not only are women leaders doing the things that we don't, normally attribute with kind of org strategy it sounds like it's very kind of a personal way of leading of bringing attention to individual needs and experiences Um, we need more of this in the workplace and so there's so few of them they're doing more work than everybody else we've got to get more people into this pipeline so that they're not the only ones doing it in this process though And actually, I want to question something I just said. So when you describe these things, helping take care of well-being, um, recognizing work-life balance and integration, because I don't think there's any such thing as balance, how much of that is one-to-one with their direct reports and a trickle down through the organization because they set a tone and model practices? And how much of that is that they are shaping and investing in those policies writ large across the organization? So, Laura,
2: the answer is both. Um, we know they're showing up day to day as stronger people managers. And that isn't just to your point, that's not just checking in on your well being and seeing how you're doing. That's actually digging in with you and helping you manage workflow and kind of work productively. So it goes beyond um, just asking about well being. And then we also know that they're showing up as DEI leaders outside the scope of their day to day job. And so, what does that look like? We know they're more likely to actively recruit candidates from traditionally underrepresented groups. We know they're more likely to participate in or run ERGs. We know they're more likely to do things like host events and bring speakers, outside speakers in with expertise that helps companies you know, advance their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. So they're doing real work. And the one thing I do want to pause on is I think this is work that maybe 10 years ago or 20 years ago, we might have... You know, pushed off as nice to have work. But I think one of the things we know for sure is this is now must have work, right? This, this is essential. Critical. Yeah, this is essential. This is about the well being of your employees during a global pandemic and how will they fare. This is about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And there's lots of research that shows if you have a diverse and an inclusive workplace, you get better results. Like your thinking is better, your work product is better. So these are like, these are, um, this is work that really affects your bottom line as an organization. And what's interesting and chagrinning is that (laughs) companies by and large know this. Most companies say they highly value and prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion. Most companies say they are highly prioritize um, employee well-being. But what's happening is women are not getting credit for this work. It is not getting pulled into performance reviews. It is going overlooked and it's going unrewarded. It's being relegated. We worry to what we'd call the new office housework, you know, work that's mission critical, but isn't, you know, you're not promoted because of it. You don't get financial reward because of it. So there's a real gap right now between what employees are, I mean, what companies are signaling is important and how they're actually rewarding and recognizing. Seen the work. And the kicker, of course, is it's women leaders who are doing most of this mission-critical work right now.
1: Right. Now, it, do you think that the reason, the motivation for the women is that they've taken on board um, the impact that it can have, particularly in the data that shows up and in the progress over time, and how much of it comes from empathy? And that as an underrepresented group in their roles, they're more sensitive to other people who experience the same thing.
0: I think it's probably part of column A, part of column B, right? It's good leadership. You know that if you're a manager, you should be supporting your team so they're less burned out. so they're happier, more more productive, more likely to stay. And part of it is, yes, we do see in our data, that people of traditionally marginalized identities, whether you're a woman, woman of color, LGBTQ woman, tend to step up more and do more in these areas.
1: Yes, which I think means that, you know, we feel it, but we want to change it and we're working on it together. Today, we are talking about the seventh annual Women in the Workplace report from McKinsey and Lenin.org, And I've got two amazing guests with me couldn't have better experts for this. Rachel Thomas is the co-founder and CEO of LeanIn.org and Jess Wong is a partner at McKinsey & Company and they are part of the amazing team that puts this report together each year. So Rachel, Jess, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to start off with something because I think this report is a must read whether you are leading an organization, a member of an organization, or you simply care about diversity in the workplace. Jess, where can people find this?
0: You can find the report at www.womenintheworkplace.com.
1: Thank you. Go get them. It's good. Download it. There's a PDF. You can print it. You can read it online. It's worth it. Um, So I want to dive into something you touched on briefly in the first half hour, and I think it warrants a lot more exploration. The data on the experience of women of color is not good. It's really showing no progress in some cases, backtracking in others, um, despite how much messaging there has been on DE&I being a priority. Um, you know, there's this difference between performative DEI and and actual efforts at making change. Um, what's going on? Why is this the case?
2: Yeah, so um, I'll jump in and I know Jess will have some great insights on this as well. So first of all, for your listeners, just kind of painting a picture, um, as you said, despite uh, height, heightened emphasis on racial equity. Most companies, I think, ninety-three percent said they last year they were taking action to advance racial equity in their organizations. DEI is obviously, you know, a, a huge focus for organizations. We know that the experiences of women of color are not getting better. So we know that compared to a couple of years ago, women of color face this similar types and frequencies of microaggressions. So for people listening who don't know what microaggressions, these are, you know, I almost hate to call them everyday slights because I think they can be pretty powerful and and pretty damaging, but they happen typically every day on a reoccurring basis in the workplace. Can I give
1: an example of one that I actually committed? So this is like, I'm owning this, I'm ashamed of it, but I feel like if we don't describe it, how are we going to learn from it? Um, We had had a speaker at a conference and I was a black woman entrepreneur and I was convinced I had met her before and I hadn't. And let's just say I did not bring any grace or humility to this conversation. And at the time, now this was a few years ago, but still not recognizing in my kind of casual confusion, as I thought, just how hurtful and insulting that was. I'm not the only one who does these kinds of things, right? I have to own it. I got to learn from it. But it's not good.
2: Yep. If, if you could see, we're, we're nodding in affirmation. So first of all, you know, we're all on a journey. We're all learning when it comes to microaggressions and other types of bias. Um, and the first step is taking it in, internalizing. If you can, apologizing in the moment. But if not, learning from it and moving forward and sharing it with others. So some other examples of microaggressions, just for people listening, um, that would be, you know, speaking over someone or interrupting them in a meeting. Uh, That's a very common microaggression that women of all identities experience. (laughs) One that you mentioned is being mistaken for someone else. Someone, um, you know, forgetting your name or mispronouncing your name. uh, surprise at your language skills or other abilities, um, having your competence challenged. Oh, by the way, having your competence challenged even in an area of expertise. So this might be a woman lawyer who gets her competence challenged uh, you know, in terms of her legal skills or legal abilities. Uh, so the, these are the types of, and that's what I say, on one hand, they're every day because they, they commonly happen in the workplace, but on the other hand, they can really pack a real punch depending on the context of them, Um, absolutely. So we know that um, women of color have always been more likely to experience microaggressions, particularly very demeaning and othering microaggressions, like hearing surprise at your abilities, hearing something that's, you know, belittling about people like you. So someone, you know, with with people with your identity, um, they're very commonly on the receiving end of these types of microaggressions. So we looked and over the last two years, it hasn't gotten any better. And so at a time when we're talking about racial equity, and I think so many people are committed to driving change, that's a real wake-up call. The second thing that we saw is so last year, when we asked employees if they considered themselves to be allies to women of color, 60% 60% of employees last year did, said they were allies. Not really taking the action of allies, but 60% identified as allies. This year, 77% of white employees identify as allies, but they're no more likely to take action. So only How- about a third of employees are speaking up um, on behalf of racial equity Only about 10% of employees are mentoring or sponsoring a woman of color. So there's this big gap between intent to be an ally and action. And what I thought was so telling is intent is up. More people are saying they're allies or see themselves as allies, but they're no
1: more likely to take the action of allyship. So So then the question becomes why. How much of that is, and Jess, I don't know if you're seeing this too day to day, but how much of that is aspirational. We sincerely want to be allies. If I can speak on behalf of white women who are doing this all over the place. Um, And how much of it is that we don't know how, and we haven't brought that self-awareness to our own behavior yet. How do we, and then if that's the case, how do we, because everybody's nodding as I'm saying this, um, (laughs) how do we get there?
0: I think you're spot on. That's why we're all nodding. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But this allyship gap is especially concerning but it's also in some ways gives me hope because to your point the intent is there people want to be allies but we're seeing a real gap in people not knowing how to be allies or maybe misunderstanding what might be a really effective ally you know allyship action And so Rachel mentioned sort of this gap between people considering themselves to be allies versus acting. We saw another gap in terms of what white employees said they thought were the most effective allyship actions versus what women of color told us was most effective. And so for, you know, white employees, they said things like working to confront discrimination if you see it or uh, publicly acknowledging something that they see a woman of color do. So things that we might describe as, you know, a little bit more reactive Mm -hmm. versus women of color, the number one most effective allyship action they said an ally could take was to advocate for them for a new opportunity, something that's very proactive.
1: So this is, this is important. And I want to seize on this and underscore this. I like this way of thinking about reactive and proactive. So is it might another way of framing it be there are those moments when we witness something that is clearly unconscionable and we react to it in that moment. That's different than when we're in the driver's seat. Nothing's occurred. We're actually making it happen ourselves. And do we go out of, bring the consciousness to it and the purpose to it, to go out of our way to try and say, advance an employee of color?
0: Exactly. Advocate for that opportunity. Go out of your way to mentor or to sponsor a woman of color, because that's what we're hearing from women of color that you know could be a really powerful action. The other thing I want to um, call out is, Laura, you mentioned reacting to something that's really egregious that you see. Allies can also react to what Rachel was just describing as the microaggressions, because those are the things that really add up, and you know they're pervasive. And so there are small things you could do when you see a woman in the meeting is being interrupted or someone is taking credit for something they said, you can say, oh, actually, I really wanted to hear what Rachel was saying. Can we can we let her finish her thought? Or, oh, yes, Rachel just made that really amazing point. And those are things that allies can do day in and day out. And I think companies need to ensure that their employees are educated on this and know how they step up as allies.
1: For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on SiriusXM Channel 132, and I'm your host, Laura Zaro. My guests today, these amazing women that you hear explaining all this complicated stuff to us, um, are Rachel Thomas and Jessica Huang. Um, both of you, I'm so appreciating some of these nuances, and Jess, that you just caught me on something that I think is really important. I'm almost embarrassed. It's like that it shouldn't just be the unconscionable, um, but Rachel, when I think about what that's like in day-to-day day life Um, part of what that means is interpersonally um, in the midst of conversation in the midst of dialogue we not only need to be attentive to these things the subtleties the little moments the microaggressions um, but we also have to find the courage and the skill to step up and do something in that moment how can we learn to do that better
2: well, my team, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that leanin.org, we just spent the last year and a half developing a free allyship at work program to bring into organizations uh, that is built specifically for this. So it okay. teaches employees how to recognize our privilege, because all of us have privilege as we move through the world, depending on different elements of our identity, and also to recognize our power in the workplace to bring about change. And, Lord, your point, we go into Uh, personal allyship, right? So how can I educate and build empathy and understanding that will help me navigate the workplace with more intentionality? We talk about interpersonal allyship. How can I show up for a coworker as Jess described in the moment and kind of practice kind of micro allyship in the moment? And then how can I show up, particularly if I'm more senior in an organization, how can I show up and really drive structural allyship? So how do we really make changes in organizations?
1: How do we find this? Where do we go to get this?
2: So you can go to leanin.org forward slash allyship at work or actually just forward slash allyship. You can even drop the work and you'll find it. Um, And it's on our womenintheworkplace.com page as well.
1: Jess, part of what we're talking about are the places where we have to learn as individuals where we have to open ourselves up, pay attention, grow. I feel like I try all day. I make mistakes all day, but I'm still trying. Within organizations, um, what can organizations be doing more systematically or systemically um, to help employees learn how to do this and create a climate where this is supported and encouraged?
0: I think there are a couple of things. One is obviously there is an element of education. So that's actually, you know, making sure your employees take something like this allyship training or program that Rachel was talking about making sure that your employees have taken bias training overall. We talked about, you know, unconscious biases earlier today as well and being able to recognize that in yourself. Um and what we actually find is that only about, you know, half of companies overall offer these types of things today. If you look at companies that have made a lot of progress over the last few years in women's representation and especially in representation of women of color. Um Over 90% of those companies are offering this training. So, you know, I think there's something oh, to be said about this oh. education.
1: Okay, well, wait a second because this is important. The So DE&I is not a branding project. DE&I is not one person's responsibility. It's clearly... Uh, has to be a multi-pronged ongoing effort. I think of it like a comprehensive fitness program. Like we always have to do cardio. We always have to stretch and work on balance and agility and some strength training. And sometimes we need to rest and nourish ourselves. Like there are a lot of parts of it and we don't get to stop. You might take an afternoon off, but so- when you're talking about this, to hear that there are 90% of the companies that are making progress, they've internalized this and put this into play, that it's an ongoing practice. It's not you know, a silver bullet.
0: That's right. We're seeing that these
1: companies that
0: have made progress are doing the real work of focusing on this education. They're also putting structural things in place because we know that as individuals, right? Like if we take your fitness analogy, it is helpful for you to have that personal trainer that makes sure you show up. It's helpful for people to join a gym and to pay for that subscription because it holds them accountable. So structural things are important and helpful too. And we see that companies are putting those in place. They're putting things in place in terms of tracking the metrics. So, you know, is your weight changing? Is your mile time changing? All of those things. They're holding people accountable, like we just mentioned. And they're putting in small practices around their hiring, around their performance review processes to make sure that these, things show up day to day in the way they work. And it's not just relying on your education and your willpower, you know, to decide to (laughs) want to do this.
1: So in the midst of this, though, you know, this tracks when we think organizations have gotten on board that even if it's not because it's a moral imperative, it's an economic imperative. Diversity is going to improve the bottom line, develop better leadership teams, um, and, but within corporate America, we're more likely to hear, you know, things that relate to the concept of I'll sleep when I'm dead, as opposed to uh, well-being is a major priority within our organization. Um, Rachel, talk to me about the emphasis on well-being in the report, particularly in the in the pandemic. And what are some of the key findings that we should be paying attention to there?
2: Yeah, I think one of the big takeaways, and I always want to give credit where credit's due to corporate America and to companies, they have really stepped up during the pandemic. Nothing's perfect, there is no panacea, but they have really stepped up. So we know that they've put more policies and programs in place to support employee well-being. For example, you know, not all companies, but many have extended pay leave in one way or another. Some of the most, um, you know, progressive companies are doing more around childcare. care. Um, so there's lots of things that companies have been doing to make the workplace a little bit easier for folks um, as we're um, navigating the pandemic. The other thing that is so interesting is companies have really embraced flexibility. Mm-hmm. So going pre-pandemic, back in 2019, when we asked employees, you know, what, what were top issues for them, the number one issue for employees was they wanted more flexibility pre-pandemic. So obviously during the pandemic, that has gone to a critical need and companies have really stepped up. And uh, so employees are taking advantage of flexibility options in way they never have before. And one of the findings that was really surprising to me was that when employees take advantage of flexible options, they don't feel like it's negatively impacting their opportunities to advance or, or you know, get get a raise or a promotion, and I think that is something
1: we should really pause on, because that's a good that's, sign. That means and that not- that also feels like progress. It because, is because you know, for those of us that have been, you know, fighting the good fight for a while, even before Lean In came out. Um, You know, this conundrum of how to ask for the flexibility so that you can stay in the workforce and be effective and the penalties that women in particular used to face for it. This is now becoming more normalized and less of a risk.
2: So, you know, I think it's a it's an end. I think it's becoming more normalized. And I do think we should celebrate that. And that means that companies are rolling out flexibility options in a way that's productive. Right. It's working Mm -hmm. for employees. We still know there's a lot of research that mothers in particular and some groups of women do face what's called flexibility stigma. Mm -hmm. So the group that really stood out and was heartbreaking in this year's report is women with disabilities are very concerned about taking advantage of flexibility options and the impact that might have on their perceived commitment and their progression. So it's still it, it's a, it's an and but it's a complicated issue. The other thing we know is although flexibility is a good thing and when employees get flexibility they're less likely to be burned out we know that many employees over the last year have said they feel like they are always on 24/7. Yes. And well- so this is a huge issue.
1: One of the things in the report that I really appreciated was in each segment, um, and it's beautifully designed, there's a kind of a little narrative blurb that explains intersectionality and then in the terms of different identities. One of the ones that really struck me was for Latinas and a recognition that um, part of um, Latin culture is living in multi-generational households and they're not the only culture and where that's the case we have to remember that it means an employee who's working at home has their parents and their kids all under one roof that would make me that's challenging let's say as um, managers, leaders within organizations, how can we increase our cultural sensitivity and support these employees in more effective ways so that flexibility just doesn't relate to their working around the clock?
2: Yeah, so, so, such a good question. So, you know, kind of the macro answer is we need flexibility with boundaries. Mm-hmm. And I think that what we saw um, is that most companies seem to be pushing the onus On creating boundaries to the employees themselves to block off time to kind of as opposed to companies taking in the responsibility and starting to put norms in place and practices in place so that you know flexibility doesn't feel like twenty four seven. In terms of uh, Latinas or other groups who are really struggling to create space for themselves, I think that managers need to um, figure out ways to ask questions that get to the real heart of things and and, and lead to like really deep, rich conversations. I'll give you like a very small example. You know, me checking in with Jess and saying, Jess, how are you doing this week? That is very different than me checking in with Jess and saying, Jess, red, yellow, green, how are you doing this week? Giving her something that she can really latch on to to signal to me as a manager that she's in trouble. Because if she says red, I should really perk up and really dig in to figure out what I can do to make things better for her. Um, and so th- I think that moving to more um, granular questions and kind of more intentionality as managers, um, and then modeling the right behavior too, which is as a manager, you should be carving out time for yourself. Mm-hmm. You should be celebrating employees when they create space for themselves and you'll know, block off a morning. And so, you know, employees really look to you as a manager to set what the norms on your team are.
1: Rachel, I love the way you frame that because you didn't just get more granular; you actually collected data. You gave them a three-point rating scale, but that idea of how do you get past the what could actually come off as glib because it's too superficial a question and get into expressing that you really want to know so that you can then be supportive. Um, Jess, question for you: as you know, part of what we're describing is interpersonal, but there are also like the idea that organization, like I block my calendar and then other parts of my organization make it very clear. I can't keep that block for, you know, deep learning or, you know, desk time. What can, what do you see organizations doing as best practices that help create a culture of boundary setting that's supported and reinforced by the organization?
0: I think what Rachel said about, you know, Uh, employees should not have the onus of splitting their calendar is one big thing, right? And honestly, managers should not have the onus of setting all the norms for just their teams. Companies at the company level should be setting some of these norms. And the most senior leaders at the company need to be role modeling these norms. I think that's one thing. I think the second thing, and this actually circles back a little bit to where we started, which is, you know, when you start measuring something, suddenly you start seeing results. So let's take Rachel's example of data collecting even further. Companies should be tracking this for all of their employees, and they should be tracking the employee well-being over time consistently to see if they're making progress here. And this likely will mean they need to make some real changes to the way they operate. It could show up in performance reviews and making sure you go through all the criteria and there's nothing like FaceTime that's showing up, right? How much time are you spending, quote unquote, in the office? How quickly do you respond to an email or pick up a phone call? I think things like that historically we've celebrated during performance reviews,
1: but Does that really make sense? Is that tied? No, and it's kind of pernicious. It's like putting pressure on a level of responsiveness that doesn't necessarily equate with better work.
0: Exactly. And then the last thing is we should be celebrating, rewarding, and recognizing the managers that are doing a good job of managing employee well-being. Why is that not something we've built into their performance reviews and that we're not, you know, why aren't we celebrating that and their leadership in those areas?
1: Jess, way to bring it full circle. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying. (laughs) Absolutely. So it sounds to me like at the heart of all of this is baking these things into the systems of organizations and really bringing a level of empathy at an individual and an organizational level to how we work together. So there's clearly so much to learn from both of your organizations. Jess, if people want to find you, want to start working with McKinsey or get involved in the report, once again, where should they go? You can go to
0: McKinsey.com. You can check out all of our diversity and inclusion reports under the insights tab. And to sign up for the report, you can go to womenintheworkplace.com.
1: Fantastic. And Rachel, how can we find you, resources that leanin.org are producing?
2: Sure. So you can go to
1: leanin.org. And we have Allyship at
2: Work, which I talked about. And we also have a great program called 50 Ways to Fight Bias. So, two programs really designed to change the culture of work. And they're free, but don't let that fool you. They were developed with huge brain trusts of experts (laughs) over a year, year and a half each. They're world class programs, but you can download them and use them no matter what size your organization.
1: Fantastic. Thank you both of you for the work you're doing and for joining us today. I am wildly grateful. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, Laura. And thank you all for joining us. If you have a question about anything you heard, email us at businessradio at seriousxm.com. Follow us on Twitter at our handle at SXM Business and me at Laura's Arrow. Download our podcast wherever you get yours. Just search for Women at Work. Many thanks, as always, to my beloved producer, Patty Hall, our amazing sound engineer, Chris Tukes. I'm Laura Arrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everybody. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.